I'm Corinne Linz, and you're listening to Infraintelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, Canada will see significant investment in port infrastructure over the coming decade as efforts continue to expand capacity at several of the country's largest ports. In the following discussion, we tackle how the global pandemic has weighed on port activity in the country since early 2020, the expected acceleration of economic activity both within Canada and globally, and what support is needed to bolster port development over the coming years. Good morning, and welcome to Renew Canada's Infraintelligence series. My name is Corrine Lenz, and I'm the content director here at Actual Media. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion on expanding capacity at Canada's ports. This is our third Infraintelligence webinar of 2022. In January, we talked about disaster resilience. In March, we did a deep dive into public transit. And today, we're here to discuss efforts to expand capacity at several of Canada's largest ports. We've got an impressive lineup of speakers joining today's conversation, but before I jump in and introduce them, I would like to take a few moments to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous peoples of Canada as the original stewards of this great country. I'm here in Toronto, which is located on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We all share on the responsibility of our natural infrastructure, and there is much we can learn from the traditional knowledge of the land, water, and materials that allow us to build projects that benefit all Canadians. All right, so let's meet our experts. First up, we have Captain Alan Gray from the Halifax Port Authority. Next up, we have Daniel Robert Gooch, Association of Canadian Port Authorities. And then we have Ian Hamilton from the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority. And last up, we have Chris Hall from the Shipping Federation of Canada. All right. Well, I'm going to pick on you in clockwise fashion as I tend to. (laughs) Um, Actually, Alan, could you please go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Good morning. And uh, Alan Gray from the Port of Halifax on the east coast of Canada. So I'm bringing a gateway ports perspective from the east coast of of, of Canada, primarily a container port um, environment. Um, But I guess also I bring 13 years alternative perspective from ports in Australia. So I have a slightly different uh, view perspective of the world. Great, thank you. All right, Daniel, it's over to you. Good morning, Daniel Robert Gooch of the Association of Canadian Port Authorities. Uh, And I'm uh, in my fourth month here. So uh, take that term expert uh, with a grain of salt. (laughs) I'm still learning, uh, but uh, happy to be here this morning. Great, thank you. Ian. Uh, yeah, Ian Hamilton, as you as you mentioned, from the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, and uh, we're uh, the largest port authority on the on the Great Lakes with about uh, four billion dollars worth of worth of cargo, and um, operations in as the, as the title suggests, Hamilton Oshawa, and also now in uh, now in Niagara with about a thousand acres of land and um, 130, 130 tenants. Fantastic, thank you. All right, Chris, you're up. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris Hall. I'm with the Shipping Federation of Canada. We're essentially an industry organization that represents the uh, owners, operators, and agents of foreign ships that carry Canada's imports and exports to the great ports that uh, that are on the call here today. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all. All right. Well, let's not waste any time. Let's jump in. I find the uh, hour that we get together goes super quick in these webinars. So the first question I've got for you guys today is, as demand for increased capacity at Canadians' ports hasn't slowed despite the pandemic, what investments have you seen made and what future investments and projects would you like to see to help ports keep up with capacity demands in the future? 
anyone want to volunteer to jump in on that one first? Happy to jump in if you like. Um, certainly from the East Coast um, point of view in Halifax, you know, we recently did an extension to our terminal berths um, uh, funded by ourselves uh, to increase the berth capacity in the port. Um, I mean, the Port of Halifax can achieve volumes of probably 1.5 million TEU, and we're running currently at about 600,000. So the need for major infrastructure on the berth spaces probably isn't there going forward. But certainly, uh, rail capacity is essential for us. And I mean, when you ask about what's the long-term investment that, that sort of needs to be done, it needs to be away from the port for us. It needs to be inland ports, intermodal facilities, things that will pull it away from the berth at a rapid rate so we can decrease dwell times. Now we have that at the moment, but as we expand, as more cargo comes at us, that'll become more challenging. And we've seen that on the west coast uh, um, of the USA where they just don't have the capacity to pull the cargo away from the ports. Um, that's essential for all our ports. You know, some ports will have a demand for more berth space, but some of us just need the methodology to get it further away from the port as quick as we can get it. Yeah. Maybe I can add, add to what's happening on the in the Great Lakes and dating even prior to the to the COVID, we've had a pretty strong um, infrastructure uh, infrastructure plan, and we've invested about half a billion dollars into the infrastructure over the last, uh, I guess, eight years in in Hamilton. And one of the areas that we particularly focused on is building the material handling uh, resources and terminal operations for uh, for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And um, Hamilton's always been traditionally a very uh, very heavy steel port. And uh, with a, a decade ago, about 80% of our business was related to steel. That number has now dropped down to uh, less than 60%. And uh, 20 to 30% of our business is now agriculture. So the um, the half a million dollar half a billion dollars of investment was mainly focused on agricultural, and um, last year we did uh, well over two billion dollars worth of um, worth of exports from Ontario farmers to uh, international international markets. So it's um, sort of illustrated how how using infrastructure can really um, really impact uh, Canada's competitiveness and uh, supply chain resilience. And I'll, yeah. if I may, I uh, just sort of build on uh, Alan's comments too about looking at the entire system. You know, often you know you think of just the marine component as being maybe the uh, uh, the biggest gap in capacity, but really you have to look at the whole thing. It's road, it's rail, it's even air. You have to look at the entire uh, the entire network because, like Alan said, you've got to get that cargo out of the port facility as fast as you can. And, you know, we're seeing congestion in, in a few places uh, in Canada and, and of course, uh, many places in the U.S. And that's the problem. It's, uh, it may not be the port itself, but it's the other related infrastructure. So that, that infrastructure discussion has to be, I think, a, a big discussion about involving many stakeholders, not just the ports. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with what uh, what Chris just said. And, and I mean, as you can tell, there's there's different stuff that's happening in different parts of the country uh, mm -hmm. when we talk about uh, capacity, but it's also more than capacity. Uh, you know, as an industry, Canada's port authorities worked with government over over the last few years to uh, improve the options for investing into port infrastructure. Uh, and we got out of that the National Trade Corridors Fund, uh, $880 million has gone to uh, Canada's port authorities to support their role in the mm -hmm. supply chains. Uh, at the same time, we've been advocating for greater financial flexibility for ports to be able to make investments themselves without uh, uh, the federal government or, or with partners. Um, so we are seeing investments in physical infrastructure, yes, like the Roberts Bank uh, 2 project out in Vancouver. Um, but, uh, you know, as Chris alluded, there 
different parts of the country have different channel challenges, mm -hmm. uh, which is why we've been uh, calling on the government and, and, and we're not the only ones calling on the government uh, to work with us on a national strategy uh, for supply chains and, and the movement of goods so that these investments that we're seeing across the country uh, can be better coordinated and aligned with our national goals for, uh, for trade, tourism and, and decarbonization. Um, that's actually a good segue. I know we were talking funding, talking government. Uh, we were having a conversation yesterday, this team, and it came up then, what role can the province play in supporting or funding port infrastructure? I guess looking at specifically the province's role. In uh, in Ontario, I think the first step is something that the this government is committed to, and that's creating a, at least a maritime strategy, because the um, we have the the ability to address so many of the problems, the problem the province is faced with in terms of congestion, in terms of um, meeting greenhouse gas reduction uh, reduction targets, um, and making Ontario businesses more competitive. Historically, where maritime or marine has been federally regulated, provinces have um, particularly in Ontario, have um, have sort of had a hands-off approach, much better much better approach in Quebec over the last uh, last five years. But um, the first step would be a maritime strategy, and then um, and then probably making uh, supporting with the investments necessary to take full advantage of the uh, sort of the marine highway. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, so I think there's there's some interesting challenges in that question, in the sense that, and I'll probably be put my neck out on the line here, <laughs> be a little bit kind of controversial in the sense that. And I probably see it more in Atlantic Canada than perhaps my counterparts in the rest of the country. There seems to be this provincialism that, that, that makes whether you invest or support in a port or what or what the role of the port is becomes a competitive thing between two provinces when really what we're trying to do is make our port authorities and our supply chain as most effective and competitive as it can possibly be. Um, the ports put in a significant contribution to provincial GDPs. You know, it's, it's significant. Uh, it's in the billions of dollars for these places. And so there's a role for the province to support the port there. But sometimes it's in some in some provinces, it's it's highly, highly supported because of that competitiveness to the next province. And in others, it's seen as, well, they're the federal body, so they don't need the provincial you know, input, you know. We need to get them to understand that, it, that there's all levels of government that need to play a role in this and support the ports because they, they're not only facilitating trade at a Commonwealth level, they're, they're facilitating economic input and jobs in the local provincial area. So I think some provincial governments struggle with that. And if they are supporting it, maybe they're supporting it for the wrong reason um, and not, not for the altruistic reason of, of growing jobs and, and community. So. Um, I think they need to play a bigger role. I think there's there's a need, even even not so much in the in the funding, but in the planning. There needs to be far more integrated planning with provincial and municipal governments to ensure that we don't get our freight corridors shut down because um, local planning has got in the way. Uh, we don't see that urban encroachment has caused a problem um, to keep the, the ports running and operating. Um, we don't see random competitiveness against the, the, the big ports that are trying to drive efficient trade um, because there's a, a whim or a will to have a political vote in a certain area, you know. And I said I'll be a little bit controversial, but, I mean, it's, these are important things. You've got 16-odd you've got port authorities who are driving trade for the country. We need strategic investment in the right place at the right time. Uh, and we need the support of the provincial governments in ensuring that what planning we're doing 
can integrate with the community because we're trying to be sustainable ports, but we need that integration. I think it's, uh, you know, I agree with, uh, with Alan that there, there's not uniformity amongst the provinces in terms of how they get into this. You know, prior to, prior to being on the marine side, I was on the airport side for for 15 years, and I've certainly seen an evolution in how the provinces look at uh, infrastructure that they've typically used to think of as well. That's the federal government's responsibility, uh, and so we'll just sort of you know leave it alone. They're certainly um, getting involved more, uh, and we're seeing you know one extreme in terms of Quebec and Ontario looking at this from a from an economic strategic point of view and, and versus other provinces that, uh, you know, are maybe a little bit more piecemeal meal in terms of their approach to, uh, to how they engage with their, with their federal ports. Sorry, Karina, I just want to expand on something that Alan, Alan said about the um, really around the encroachment and sort of the gentrification of um, the areas around, around ports. And he's highlighted a big, uh, a big challenge that, um, that we have to address. Ontario has created something called provincially significant employment zones, which goes some way in protecting, protecting those areas. But as, um, as uh, sort of urban centers continue to to grow, they um, they sometimes forget uh, forget they were there because of the port, and it puts a lot of challenge on us for um, for space, which um, which needs to be protected. And I think the province plays a bigger role, even than the federal government, in that um, in that capacity. And I think we're all saying that a national strategy is needed. And uh, and I know when the uh, ports modernization review uh, was kicked off a few years ago, that was one of the key points that that our organization made was we we need a national strategy. There's some regional strategies, uh, but is there is there one big one that's truly addressing all of the needs? And uh, perhaps the government's moving in that direction now. And you know, with the newly formed uh, supply chain task force, it'll be interesting to see how that how that evolves. But uh, but a bigger a bigger picture view and a very uh, robust strategy is definitely needed. All right, so our next question. After the past two years of pandemic-related shortages, there's never been a brighter spotlight than there is now on Canada's supply chain. As the industry awaits announcements from Transport Canada's Port Modernization Review, what are the key areas you would like to see addressed to help ports grow and strengthen their global competitiveness? I think we started to touch on this a little bit, uh, but let's dig in a bit more. Are lots of heads nodding, so who should we pick on first? Maybe I'll <laughs> Kick it, kick it off. Uh, I mean, certainly our organization put a lot of uh, thinking and Canada's port authorities put a lot of thinking into the ports modernization review. You know, I agree with Chris. Uh, there's a lot that seems to be happening right now. We've been calling for a strategy for years. I'm, I'm now hearing it amongst parliamentarians that they, they see the need. In terms of the port modernization review itself, uh, I'd say it's one of those rare opportunities that we get a chance to, to take a look at what we need uh, in terms of port infrastructure for this country, how it's structured, uh, and the operating environment for Canada's ports. Uh, we'll have an opportunity here, uh, or the government, I should say, has an opportunity to, to, to fix some things that um, that that could be uh, you know worthy of updated. One area of top concern for us is governance. Uh, our CPAs were created in the late 1990s to introduce business acumen uh, to be locally responsive. Uh, and to operate at arm's length of government. And, and by and large, the model has been a success. Um, while the feds, uh, while, you know, looking at board governance uh, in particular, while the federal government appoints uh, directors, uh, they do so in consultation with port users. Uh, we'd like to see improvements uh, around the uh, timelines for appointments and greater attention by the federal government to the skills needs that our boards have identified and, and, their port, and the candidates that port users uh, have put forward uh, and it, but it's absolutely essential that the local nature of CPAs working at uh, arm's length of government be maintained. 
you know, one of the things that ports are looking for out of this is the ability to be more nimble through greater financial flexibility. Uh, this means different things to different ports. Uh, for some, it means streamlined approach to being able to borrow for that infrastructure investments that they need to be made, uh, such as replacing the current limits on, uh, on borrowing with minimum credit ratings uh, or minimum debt service standards. Uh, or in the very least, streamlining the uh, the borrowing process uh, and the ability to get those limits raised. Uh, for other ports, uh, it means continued access to funding options like the National Trade Corridors Fund, uh, but other options as well um, for ports uh, where the projects are perhaps not not a, a designed for the National Trade Corridors Fund, like maintenance uh, and upgrades to aging infrastructure, for example. So I think there's a lot that we're looking to see, uh, and uh, we're hoping to see it soon. I, I think one thing that uh, has been missed uh, is the the broad-reaching impact that these strategies have. You know, um, uh, Transport Canada is the regulator, yes, but there are so many other government agencies and departments that, that all form part of that transportation system. So everything needs to be considered, uh, more alignment between departments. You know, it's, uh, it's one thing if you create more capacity somewhere, but if uh, other supporting government agencies aren't able to or have the mandate to support that extra capacity, then... Uh, then it's not going to be effective. So it, uh, it it needs to take into account all of the stakeholders in the whole, uh, use the term supply chain, everyone's using it now, but in that, in that whole system, everyone needs to be included. And maybe, maybe I can, thanks, Tristan. Maybe I can jump in just quickly on expanding on what Daniel talked about. And one of, one of the things that we've discovered is that uh, certainly for every dollar that, uh, that we invest in infrastructure, industry is willing to invest up to 400% or four, four times that amount. And I, and I think that um, some of the instruments that uh, Daniel's describing and creating additional financial flexibility to allow us to partner with industry to, um, to create the funds to, um, to really pay for that, uh, pay for that infrastructure is, um, is very, very important. So right, right now it's, um, it, it is truly two, two silos, but I think that um, more tools in terms of equity partnerships and joint ventures that are available to us, the, um, the more ability it is to be creative in, um, in creating those funds to, to drive those infrastructure investments. And look, I'm supportive of my colleagues here, but I, I guess, uh, yeah, obviously, but I, I guess I'd add one of the things is that, you know, on what Ian's saying with, uh, yeah, there is there is capacity in industry, and I think we need to we need to leverage that less so than trying to always run to government for funding. Um, we need to use the industry to partner and more, more, more partnerships, but our ability to do that is hampered in some ways, and, and we need to get that freed up. And therefore, you know, we're engaging with industry to partner on some of these infrastructure delivery um, models. Um, but the other side of that is approval processes and things like that. So it's outside the port modernisation review, but it is relevant to government. You know, it's streamlining some of these processes. And that's not to bypass due diligence or, or good governance or anything like that. But it needs to just, the, the government needs to get a lot more agile in the approval processes so that we don't lose the opportunities with some of these investors that are coming along and saying, you know, here's what we can do. Now, whether it's need to be a shift in our financial ability, whether it needs to be uh, an, an, an assessment or approval, it just needs to be far more agile so that we don't lose the possibility of delivering some important infrastructure for Canada. Uh, I'm going to switch focus a little bit now. Um, kind of a pet favorite topic for me really lately. But over the years, ports and the shipping industry in general have not always been seen as entirely environmentally friendly, but that's been changing a lot in recent years and with a lot more focus as well. What types of programs and initiatives are being taken by Canadian ports in the 
areas of sustainable practices, reducing GHG emissions, and overall achieving net zero. Love to hear about some of the, uh, the programs, initiatives, and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm happy to jump in first if everyone's okay on that one. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so look, we, you know, we, we've been running uh, on a sustainability program for a number of years, and we just went a little bit harder on it this year with um, quite extensive uh, public consultation and survey as to what was important to the community from a sustainability point of view. And, and interesting enough, you know, whilst, whilst global emissions are important to people, local quality of air and noise and things like that are far more important. And, and my view's always been actually, it's far easier to focus on that than it is to, on, the, on the perspective of global emissions. If we can get down to in, uh, improving the quality of air and the amenities that, that your local community are dealing with, then you're also ultimately solving, you know, the, the global problem in a roundabout way. But, you know, we've just introduced the uh, environmental ship index for, for um, vessels calling on the port to drive improvements. So they get the incentive they receive from us, um, which is an incentive for their port bills, um, is based on an improvement index. So, you know, they might be rated at a 20 on the index now, but if they move to 40, then they get an improvement in the, the incentive. So there's that component of, incentivizing shipping lines to move quicker towards their emissions and then there's our own decarbonization exercise moving to fully renewable energies looking at alternative fuels and things for our equipment um, and through the peer which is our living lab here port innovation engagement and research we're working with the industry and stakeholders and the innovation sector on you know what are some innovative technologies that we can use to improve decarbonization Hydrogen obviously is on everyone's lips. Um, the government has a hydrogen um, strategy. The ports are going to play a very important role in that energy transition. Whether it's because we're such a big user uh, and, and, and the ships that are coming here are going to need renewable fuels to the bunker, or whether we're actually ports that are going to be part of the energy food chain, if you like, where we're importing or exporting uh, renewable fuels, you know, We'll each have a different role to play, um, but a very significant role in the decarbonisation exercise. I guess I'll just jump in on the uh, the green green ship incentives. Uh, that's something that the industry really supports, and and I think uh, there's there's broad acceptance that uh, that things are improving and, and ships are getting better, and recognition from ports uh, for that is is super. So, yeah, Alan, you've done that in Halifax. I know Vancouver has a program, and and others. Uh, you know, we kind of like to see a, a national program, and and uh, Alan, you've been controversial, maybe on a few comments. Maybe I'll be controversial and say. Perhaps it should be a national program, and it should be uh, it should be you know funded by uh, someone other than than the individual ports, and then you've, you're creating a little more of a uh, a national competitiveness competitiveness versus a a regional or a, or a port specific competitiveness. Let's have those um, green incentives applied uh, nationally, coast to coast to coast, for ships visiting the ports. Uh, to us, that that makes uh, a lot more sense than uh, well, you get it in this port, but you don't get it in that port. 
and then in Hamilton and um, in Oshawa, we've done some we've done some neat uh, neat stuff as well. And it's um, but our our footprint in itself is relatively small from the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority. Although we have um, installed uh, in two of our buildings solar panels and uh, electric vehicle charging stations and uh, put in a cogeneration facility that um, is actually now producing the uh, the heat that's used to melt uh, melt sugar in one of the sugar refining facilities. So we've done some we've done some neat stuff that way. But as I said, our footprint's relatively small, but some of the um, sort of uh, systemic uh, initiatives that we've taken is where we can have a bigger bigger impact. And one one of the areas is we work closely with uh, Degagne um, to start a fueling depot in in the Great Lakes now, and have fueled about 14 ships last year with uh, with LNG, which has about a 30% reduction in um, in their their emissions. Another area that we see is hugely important is around um, modal um, modal shift and trying to move trucks off of the off of the road and their cargo off of the road and move it onto onto vessels and the potential for that is is about a 90% reduction in emissions of a vessel versus a versus a truck so by being able to do that i think is um will have the most uh, most meaningful impact and it also has an impact on congestion because each vessel can carry about 1000 or 990 truckloads which is a fantastic impact and as chris mentioned I think some initiatives to recognize that um, those social and environmental benefits to get some of these um, these new projects off the ground would be uh, would be invaluable. The other the other piece in our situation again we're somewhat unique in that um, that we are kind of a uh, an inland transportation node as opposed to a gateway across the one of the oceans, but um, is around data and starting to understand how cargo is moving by which by which mode today and where new products can be created um, by marine that'll um, that'll help to to address some of those areas and i think 10 years ago there was a lot of um, silo thinking and um, conflict between the different nodes but um, but now i think it's uh, there, there is a lot more of a collaborative approach with driver shortages and with congestion. Everybody's looking for better ways to create sustainable um, supply chains, and um, and now they no longer see marine as a threat, but see it as part of the uh, part of the overall multimodal mix. And again, back on what Chris is talking about, we really really starting to recognize where these um, where investments can be made and where some incentives can be put into place to get some of these projects off the ground would be would be great. And infrastructure is fantastic and there's some good tools for that, but to also in terms of operating and seed capital for some of these new projects would be wonderful too. Well, being new to the industry, I can't really speak to how it was historically viewed, but I can say that since joining ACFA, I've been quite impressed by the commitment of our ports to environmental sustainability, both in terms of the emissions side of things, but also this you know, local land and water and, uh, you know, quality of life in the community. I think that's one of the strengths of, you know, our local arms-based uh, model uh, for Canada Port Authorities. It's not all directed uh, from Ottawa. It's, it's customized for the community. Um, you know, all 17 of our CPA members are members of the Green Marine Program, which uh, is an international program that was developed right here uh, in Canada. So um, I think that's something that we could certainly all be proud of in terms of the, uh, the commitment of the industry. To uh, to environmental sustainability. Yeah, and I would uh, I would sorry, Alan. I would just do a shout out to all seventeen Canadian port authorities <laughs> to say that it's recognized that that you all do a great job uh, on the environmental side, uh, whether it's conforming to uh, you know uh, existing legislation or new initiatives. I think that's well recognized in the industry. So well 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 done to the ports. Yeah, I think I think it's also worth adding that you know the a lot of what we've been talking about here in terms of investments into capacity 
have knock-on effects in terms of efficiency. So when you know when you when you have better visibility of when cargo is coming and arriving and less dwell time for the for the ships, all of that has uh, knock-on effects for the environment. So uh, you know it's 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 a, a great case I think for the investments that need to be made in the future because there is still a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, we all acknowledge the environment's important and sustainability is important, but it, there's an interesting commercial you know upside to it as well. I mean. Uh, we just did some recent work um, actually looking at the global emissions or the GHG emissions across the complete supply chain for our port. And we're able to show shipping lines that it was better for them to transit through the port of Halifax than it was to go first another another route. You know? So and that and that sort of decision making is starting to happen by by customers. You know, you know, many, many people listening will probably understand Skyscanner and you can go on there and pick a, pick a route on an aircraft and you can say I want one stop or two stops or three stops and I want it to cost less than this much and I want it to be able to be less than 12 hours but I also want the emissions on that route to be below this amount. Well we're starting to see that development in the data technology that's happening in ports. Ports are starting to do the calculations but we're now actually starting to get the ability to connect that together so shippers are actually starting to be able to make decisions about well, do I want it there in the fastest route possible? Do I want it there at the cheaper way? Or do I actually want to have a global footprint which is lower for this type of cargo? And that's where ports can play an important role, not only in helping their own communities, but effectively in, in, in the actions they take, they help the overall footprint of the supply chain. And and there's commercial the commercial opportunity for them in doing that as well. So it's not all it's not all cost and, and altruistic. There are there are upsides I'll uh, I'll build on uh, Alan's comments, and I can't believe no one's brought it up yet. Uh, you know, we we think of infrastructure, you know, roads, piers, uh, warehouses, that the big stuff, but digital infrastructure—that's uh, something that uh, is happening, starting to be developed now. Um, I think it's uh, maybe not a, a very coordinated approach. Um, you know, there's so many different entities that are, are recognizing the need to. Uh, uh, build up digital capacity, but we think there should be a, a national strategy. And I think uh, uh, Canada is really well positioned to be uh, to be a world leader in this. You know, we've got the talent, we've got the uh, the knowledge. Um, you know, we can really be uh, a world leader in, in digital infrastructure. And and uh, uh, I, I know all the ports are looking really hard at this. Our kind of concern uh, from industry is that uh, there could be a, a number of um, initiatives developed that uh, that don't uh, don't interact and uh, there isn't you know a coordinated effort maybe but uh, I'll, I'll stop there and just say digitization uh, infrastructure is going to be going to be key the reassuring part chris is that there is a project working through at the moment on a national resilience program which will connect the five major container ports with data so if that continues to work through you you'll see the collaboration across the five major container ports sharing data and information that uh, will improve uh, shipping's um, ability to connect with data. Uh, it's good to hear that's that's going. That's great. Uh, I'm curious to know, when we talk about this in relation to other bits of the infrastructure world, um, there's been a pretty massive skill shortage in a lot of areas. With speaking digital and all these other good, great innovations, are you finding that there's a skills shortage as well in, in your division? Is that, and are there programs in place to kind of cultivate the next generation that's going to 
bring in all this digitization, all the other good stuff that comes with it? Can I jump in and be uh, controversial again? Of course. <laughs> it's welcome. <laughs> and, and I apologise. But, I mean, look, yes, there is. Uh, you know, from the first question, yes, there is. Um, and, and partly COVID is exacerbated that. You know, some people aren't returning to work. You know, people have made choices from a work-life balance that, you know, it's coming to work every day is not there. Um, jobs are changing. So from the waterside, um, waterfront workers, jobs are changing. And what they're going to look like in 10 to 15 years is going to be different and actually encouraging young people to go down in snowy weather and lash cargo on ships is, isn't as appealing perhaps as it once was despite them being well-paid jobs. There's pockets of work going on around workforce development. You know, So people are looking at, well, what do I have to do to get there? But what there isn't is a national strategy. And we're still seeing again where, I mean, and this goes through the whole education system across Canada, there's not a national framework in education. It's, it's all left at the provincial level. So we still see levels of protectionism. Uh, I heard on a call recently uh, where West Coast waterside workers didn't want East Coast waterside workers coming across and taking their jobs. You know, you know, I come from a culture within Australia where we have a national education framework and people move about all the time for work. You know, if, if there's an oil and gas boom on the West Coast, the East Coasters move across for a while and work. As soon as that slides down, they move back to the East Coast and do construction work. Yeah, you know, that moving, and they're all recognised. Yeah, you know, there's not this. I have to be re-recognised on my skill sets when I move about. So if we want to deal with the future needs for for um, skills, one, we have to identify what we need. Two, I think we need a national framework um, which allows the skills to be uh, across the board and transferable. They need to be transferable across the country. Um, otherwise, we're just not going to encourage young people to, to, to take on these roles into the future. The consequence of that is more automation. You know, and I'm, I'm not opposed to automation. I, I love technology. But, you know, I also believe from a community perspective that having good, well-paying jobs is, is important as well. So if we want to continue to provide good, well-paying jobs, then we need people to step up and, and do the work. You know, this issue reminds me a bit of when we talk about how there's all this attention on supply chains. Uh, you know, I, it's a bad thing, uh, you know, from the perspective of our economy. It's a good thing from the perspective of visibility uh, that this this is a challenge across the economy. It's not just uh, the, the marine transport sector. You see it in, in multiple industries. Um, there's a, a lot of talk on it. I'm not sure that it's necessarily translating into into the, the actions that will get us where we need to be. Uh, you know, when it comes to supply chains, we're only as strong as the weakest link. Um, if you're, you're, you know, you're fully staffed at ports and, and that's working wonderfully, but there are no truck drivers, uh, then, uh, you know, then, then we then we end up with some of the same challenges. So, I, you know, I think it really needs to be, uh, and I know there are people thinking about this Canadian Chamber and others, but it's really, it's across the economy. Um, pilot shortage, shortage in tourism workers, it's a shortage of skilled workers and uh and, and those entry-level workers. Um, we, we, we have a, a national uh, challenge here. I couldn't agree with Daniel and, and Alan more. And, some, and the other area, of course, is the, um, the onboard, particularly the Canadian, uh, Canadian flag fleet cannot get, uh, cannot get sailors. One of the other areas that we struggle with as well, and Alan touched on it in, in kind of the, um, the velocity of getting projects from start to finish, is that the, um, the volatility of the pricing now. 
makes mm -hmm. it extremely difficult with infrastructure projects and um, large scale where you could be two to three years in the planning and by the time you get to the finish line your pricing um, your pricing is so different from what you uh, what you budgeted for in the uh, in the start and that's that's a lot driven by by again lab labor shortages as well as supply chain supply chain issues but um, port authority projects are just traditionally pretty pretty large um, long-term projects and um, without having that uh, price stability it makes it extremely difficult to um, to fund the uh, the gaps so uh, I'm gonna move on to our next question then so earlier this year the National Trade Corridors Fund uh, put out a call for project submissions to assist ports with measures to relieve immediate supply chain congestion and facilitate movement of goods in the long term what areas should the NTCF focus on in order to help port authorities facilitate better movement of goods and reduce bottlenecks in Canada's supply chain? That's a big question. So <laughs> um, anyone like to start us out here? Maybe I'll take the easy part. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, from, from, from a Halifax point of view, we, we, we have capacity uh, and we're able to cope with growth. Uh, now, so we, we we don't have to go out and demand large volumes of infrastructure funds um, to to get us where we need to be, and we're also doing smart investments in the sense of we're infilling uh, some piers with already slate that's available for construction work, so it's a cost-effective way of commencing uh, expansion without running to funds. Where where I'm worried and where I want to see funds developed is uh, in the resilience of the supply chain. Now, we have um, uh, Shignacto Ithmus, which Chris would be um, familiar with, but I apologise if I pronounced it incorrectly, but very narrow piece of land below seawater um, uh, level, uh, which connects Nova Scotia to New Brunswick. Um, it carries our major highway, it carries our rail system, it carries our electrical systems, and it carries our communication systems. And with glo global weather change and all the rest of it, that's at risk and it's at very high risk and studies have indicated that you know the payback for investing in uh, funds in getting that safe and resilient is 140 times you know so you go why aren't we fixing this problem why aren't we getting onto this but to me and we saw it in the west coast um, with the fire the flooding you know we we have to start investing some money on the resilience of the supply chain so as the ports are efficient and the ports are reliable places to put your cargo through, the supply chain is resilient enough to deal with it behind. You know, we have single railway systems across the country. Uh, we have highways that are at risk. You know, uh, there needs to be some real investment in that area. And Chris touched on the other part, which was really um, the data side of it. You know, there needs to be a much stronger push in investment in, in data infrastructure that, um, that allows us it actually allows us to optimise the existing infrastructure that we have here in Canada. You know, we talk about building new stuff and everyone gets excited about building new stuff, but we there are ways to optimise what we have and, and, and bleed the assets to, and, and Chris, I'm sure you'll appreciate this is, you know, if you, if you build infrastructure too soon, the supply chain and the shippers end up paid for it. You know, it, it's, it's paying for something too early. If we bleed our assets and the volumes increase, then, then there's enough volume to pay for the new infrastructure that's coming along. So it's all about right time, right place, 
unlike in Halifax, Ontario really does struggle with having the capacity to manage demand. The the economy now is uh, the GTHA economy is now the fourth largest in all of North America and uh, one of the fastest fastest growing. So for us, it's really building building that capacity and sim- similar to to Alan's point around around resilience is building redundancy inside of our supply chains. We discovered uh, so often during, particularly during COVID, when it was so highlighted that um, one, if one thing goes wrong, the whole system shuts down. And I think building um, again that that whole national strategy around how do we how do we create redundancy in our systems to deal with the the peaks and troughs of troughs and demand, and when certain um, certain nodes are are down, how do we how do we continue to have the cargos the cargos flow? So in in Ontario, it really is about um, about capacity, and that's that's not just in the infrastructure side of it, which is vitally important, but also in the um, in making sure that you've got um, you've got a, kind of a multiple solutions to the same problem. You know, your your question asks about where what areas should the NTCF focus, and I think you're hearing that here. It's it's uh, physical capacity, but also that digital uh, mm-hmm. capacity that that comes. It's resilience, it's redundancy, but you know, I would suggest. I mean, part of the challenge is is that it has been piecemeal decisions on where uh, the NDCF should be focused, and uh, what we really need, um, and and uh, I think Ian just spoke to it, is uh, is a strategic long term vision, you know, a plan for what this country needs in terms of its multiple trade corridors, uh, mm-hmm. so that we can all work together a little bit more efficiently and more effectively uh, to to support our future trade growth global competitiveness, uh, all while reducing the uh, the impact of marine transport on the environment. There are significant challenges ahead in terms of decarbonization. Uh, and so a lot of investments that are going to need to be made, uh, uh, direct investments in terms of shore power electrification, uh, but also infrastructure to support uh, the newer, cleaner fuels that that, that ship owners uh, are, are going to be using in the, in the decades to come. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think as a country, we'd be well served to have that long-term vision, that long-term strategy for uh, for supply chains and movement of goods across uh, across our trade corridors. Great, thank you. Uh, so I have a question now for Daniel and Ian. What can be done to further modernize and optimize the value of the St. Lawrence Seaway as a binational transportation system? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. The um, I think one of the, the, the first and foremost is to take advantage of the available capacity when um, particularly our roadways are busting at the seams and can't um, can't meet demand we need to uh, recognize that we do have capacity in the system also recognizing that the traditional cargoes that would have moved on the St. Lawrence Seaway effectively it was sort of iron ore coming uh, coming into the system to feed the steel mills and and agricultural going out Uh, agricultural still stays strong but the um the iron ore is, is dramatically reduced. So the actual volumes peaked in the 1970s and have declined ever since. And when you look at every other, uh, every other cargo type, the cargo, the, the volumes continue to grow, whereas we're creating, have more capacity available in our, in our system. So what we now need to do is to look at some of the more um, the durable goods and the fast moving consumer goods that are moving um, today by uh, by ground transportation, and how can we convert those into um, into moving by marine to take advantage of the um, the greenhouse gas um, profile emissions and the um, ability to reduce uh, reduce congestion and create more supply chain uh, supply chain resilience. So, how do we do that? We probably have to change the types of infrastructure we invest in uh, away from the. Uh, completely the bulk and the break bulk types of investments we've made into more container operations and row row operations. Um, again, talk about um, how can we incentivize new products to be brought into the market that would actually move those move those durable durable goods. And truly, 
again, I've used the word a couple of times, but get away from the, the silo mentality and get all the three modes working closely together. So how do we, uh, how do we kind of get the right modal balance so that everything um, moves in the most, uh, the most efficient, most efficient and sustainable sustainable way so it's um it's it's a great opportunity in front of us it's um marine has traditionally been proven to be the greenest form of transportation um and it uh, has it can solve so many of the so many of the problems and the capacity is available to us we just have to sort of change our mindset to to look at a different um a different category of goods you know the the great lake st lawrence system that we have here in canada is uh, a tremendous asset uh, to to our country and to the United States. I mean, you have this direct marine, the most energy efficient, uh, emissions efficient uh, mode of transportation directly into the heart of North America, where something like 40% of the population of this continent lives. Um, I think the the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence, are an excellent example of untapped potential. Um, you know, and if we sit down and we start working on this national strategy, there needs to be a chapter on this. Uh, there's uh, certainly from a missions perspective, the switching from those uh, 990 trucks into uh, into vessels, uh, you know, can be tremendously valuable. But we also just talked about how we have a shortage of workers and a shortage of drivers uh, and uh, and tremendous congestion in southern Ontario that could all be alleviated uh, by by taking those 990 trucks off uh, per vessel off the road. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd echo your comments, Daniel, about the, the importance of the seaway system and the Great Lakes, uh, including me and two. Uh, you know, our, our members are heavily involved in that corridor. And you know, we, we've been talking about port infrastructure. We also need to think about the seaway infrastructure and uh, and what's the, the, the critical role that that plays. And it is it is uh, significant, to say the least, that the economic impact is you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars a day when that uh, when that network is down for any reason. So um you know, I think we we also have to think of the seaway system too. Mm-hmm. Just on expanding on that, and Daniel's point, the just a fun fact, but if you um, if you combine the economies of the states and the provinces bordering the Great Lakes, they would be the uh, the third largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a question for Chris. From the perspective of owners, operators, and agents of ships involved in Canada's shipping industry, what are the most important issues when it comes to increasing port capacity? I, I think probably, well, there's a few. I think one of the first ones is uh, related to the container sector, and that would be uh, dwell time. So that's the time that uh, the containers sit on the dock before they are moved uh, moved out. Um, Alan, you'll uh, you'll know all about that, and you're probably measuring uh, measuring the heck out of that on a daily basis. But that is probably one of the uh, the single biggest pain points uh, for our members is uh, is how long the boxes are sitting. Um, the other is probably birth availability, and it's maybe more of a more of a West Coast issue, but uh, but birth availability and and the or lack of and the the domino effect that gets created when uh, when a ship can't get to the birth uh, when it's uh, when it needs to or or is planned to um, the the implications uh, down the stream are just huge uh, the cost implications the uh, just the the uh, logistical complications to to that ship and then all of the others uh, behind it it's uh, it's a very very big issue so yeah I think that the top two birth availability and uh, end to all times heavily linked together Chris absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah, sure. yeah. You know, I heard uh, I heard something uh, recently at the International Association of Ports and Harbors conference in in Vancouver that, you know, the congestion that we that we've seen uh, represented something like taking 15 percent of the capacity out of the market. Um, so you have to look at it from that perspective as well. 
you know, another topic that we haven't really touched on, we talked a little bit about local communities surrounding uh, the ports. We haven't got into, and I noticed that it is one of the priorities um, in a lot of the documents surrounding future improvements. But what about reconcil reconciliation with the Indigenous communities? Is there specific efforts in place to try and, um, I don't know what the word is really, but to like to move forward and include those? And I certainly, I know where this is coming up and I bring it up because it comes up in a lot of the other areas and infrastructure that trying to work with local communities also as a way of bringing in employment or like employees. So I'm wondering if there's any programs in place um, that are they're specifically working with those Indigenous communities trying to foster, uh, you know, more help in that way as well. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's different examples around. I mean, I think there's a good example in Vancouver where they worked with uh, an Indigenous group uh, on putting in a marine container examination facility and the Indigenous group uh, in that area uh, operate the marine container examination facility. So there was a partnership there which said, well, we had to deliver some infrastructure we needed away from the port. There was some recognition of land ownership and, and, and then a program which allowed them to run the business and and develop their young people in, in new skills. Uh, some of the work we're doing here, again, is looking at how, and it's not just Indigenous, um, in Nova Scotia, we also have an issue with um, uh, former African Nova Scotian communities. Um, uh, and, you know, we're looking at, you know, how do we bring them into training programs or, or roles that, that assist in, in engaging them with what's before. As we move forward with, um, inland ports and things like that, I think there's going to be real opportunities there to seek out partnerships with uh, uh, Indigenous landowners and, and see what partnerships we can develop in, in developing uh, an inland port uh, and getting skill sets developed into community. So I think there's there's less than we would like happening right now, but there's mm -hmm. certainly aspirations and identification of what we can do. And we're pulling that into our sustainability plans and things like that to say, well, look, these are the areas of engagement. Our impact assessment program that we have to go through for projects does require us to engage uh, in those conversations. So there, there, there is a process around it, but you know that that's somebody's rule that says we have to. Where we where we need to get to is where it's more organic. This is, you know, this is an area where the the local nature of, of port governance and port management is is just so important because these are community relationships that ports, you know, around the country are are developing uh, with uh, the, the First Nations in their community. From a national perspective, what we do at uh, ACPA is really just provide a, a platform for our ports to learn from each other, uh, in in terms of what they're doing with their local Indigenous uh, partners and and what you know what what could be shared and. and uh, and, and done in other communities. I think, I think echoing what Alan said, the, the, I, I do believe we're, we're seeing a lot more opportunities for, um, for joint projects with the, um, with the indigenous communities as well. And, uh, particularly around, uh, around energy and some, some of those mm -hmm. areas. And we, we, although we're all sitting on the edges of our seat waiting for what the content of the port's modernization is going to be, we, we do anticipate there'll be some codification of how that engagement process, uh, process works. All right, we're running short on time now. So I have one more question for Alan, and then I want to make sure I give each of you a minute to wrap up. So, uh, Alan, with the completion of the South End Container Terminal Extension Project, is becoming a deep water port and being able to accommodate larger vessels the only way to expand capacity? And I think you kind of touched on this a little already. Yeah, too. Uh, and thanks. And no, no, it isn't. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit about the digital um, side of it. So there's, there's that. Um, so, you know, 
be more aware of what's coming so you can scale up supply of labor or trucks or rail cars um, to have it at the right time and move cargo away you know we're very proud of the fact that you know we have good um uh well times um we were the only canadian port that got into the top 50 of the recent world um banks ranking so we're, we'll take away and i'll take that as a moment of pride for me but um you know it is yeah it, it, it is because we're focused on that but optimization of the terminals and that's one one of the things we said here quite often the, the comment out there was you know halifax has reached capacity and people said that because they saw that the terminal was full of containers you know but we had reached capacity old habits over time of saying well i can store empties on the on the container berth because i could um i can have um buildings for all my different shipping lines to have their own building on the terminal is okay because i've got capacity to do that now we're saying you know that's not good practice that's not the best practice out there in industry we need to optimize the terminal space for throughput um so focusing on improved um operations better terminal layouts um better yard management and then looking at that dwell time looking at how do we make sure we've got enough on dock rail to get that those away quickly how do we turn trucks away and doing that in a way that we don't impact on the city so using vehicle booking systems things like that where we make more efficient use of the gate times that we're doing and then attaching that to the whole data story you know is can we pre-arm people with information can we make sure that our customers understand exactly where their container is and how they can get it you know we're seeing that at the moment um People talk about just-in-time arrival. That's one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy at the moment um, because we're talking about ships. But, you know, container lines need to make service delivery times. You know, it's not about just slowing them down and then they turn up and we deal with them. They need to make schedules. Um, but we need to be able to make sure that we've got services in place at the right time for that. So that data transparency, knowing exactly what the ship's bringing to us so that we can be prepared, becomes a critical component in, in the whole supply chain. All right, so we have four minutes left, which is perfect. It gives you a minute each. Um, we've just a few minutes, so I'd like to give each of you a chance to share your final thoughts. What projects should we keep an eye on for the future? Why don't we start with Chris? Well, I think we need to keep our eye on them all, actually. Uh, I mean, there's some big ones uh, that have been talked about for a long time. Uh, you know, the Roberts Bank uh, initiative from, uh, from the Port of Vancouver. Um, you know, hopefully we'll see some extra capacity uh, in Vancouver uh, sometime soon and, and some announcements there. But so there, there are the big ones. But I think the, uh, um, the, the smaller ones are the ones sort of on the other end of the spectrum. They all have to be watched. Like we were talking about today, uh, you know, it's one big system and everything is, is key. Yeah, we need a national strategy and not have duplication of gateways, but but all of these little uh, projects add capacity and, and create resilience. So I think we have to watch them all and uh, and consider them all in the bigger context and not just look at them as, oh, that's just one little regional play. Uh, no, it, it, it could it could contribute to uh, to the broader, uh, the bigger picture here. All right. Thank you. How about you, Ian? Yeah, I, I agree with Kristen that all the projects are, are vitally vitally important and um, particularly the ones who are, are kind of um, addressing the opportunity we have right now around um, building supply chain resilience. The, the one in particular that we will we'll be watching very, very closely is around, um, we call them short sea shipping initiatives, and that's really starting to take advantage of that uh, capacity in the, um, in the St. Lawrence 
uh, river and in the Great uh, Great Lakes. It's um, th there are a number of initiatives that started now, and the, again, the timing couldn't be better with the emphasis on um, on supply chain resilience, reduction in greenhouse gases, and um, and trying to address the uh, congestion and driver shortage issues. So they're the projects that we're we're watching most closely, and that's um, that's a way to really uh, really leverage the available capacity in the system today. Perfect. All right, Alan, you're up next. Yep. So, so that I don't add on the same stuff, I'll take a different stance. <laughs> um, you know, for Atlantic Canada, particularly the energy transition that's going on, um, you know, there is a huge demand in Europe and Canada's seen as well-placed to supply green hydrogen. Um, mm -hmm. So if we're going to be an export uh, country uh, where we're, we're transferring energy from Canada to Europe, um, the ports are going to be a major player in that. And that's going to require a significant amount of infrastructure that perhaps these ports just don't have. And if we want to be competitive, if we want to meet the timing, because, you know, I know my compatriots in Australia are very aggressively out marketing that Australia is closer to Germany than we are. Um, uh, but, you know, it's it's important for us to, to be involved in that conversation right now. And it's important for us to look at the investments and how we're going to make those investments in a timely fashion so that we can deliver um, a, a really good opportunity for Canada and a new export market. Thank you. All right, Daniel, bring us home. All right. Well, I, you know, I agree with Chris that uh, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be watched. One thing uh, we've heard a bit about today is is the, the data and the data sharing uh, to, to make better use of capacity that that's existing. I think you know, one thing I'm watching, and I think others are watching, is the work that's being done in the United States uh, from a from a federal perspective to, to try and improve that through the uh, the flow initiative. Um, so that'll be very interesting to watch and and see where that goes and whether there's lessons uh, up here uh, for Canada to learn from that. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of our panelists. We wouldn't be able to host important conversations like this one without generous industry support. So thank you again. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.